Well, October 2017 is an important month in the world of church history. And in fact, this month is the 500th anniversary of one of the most important events, quite frankly, in all of human history, when you think about it. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a disgruntled monk of the Roman Catholic Church, took a hammer along with a list of 95 protests against the teaching and practice of the Roman Catholic Church of his day. He took that hammer and he nailed those protests to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, the gesture itself wasn't as rude or as brash as it might sound. Back then, the church doors functioned as a community bulletin board of sorts. And when he nailed those protests to the door of that church, Martin Luther wasn't trying to start a rebellion. He certainly didn't think he was going to change the world. He was simply trying to open up some healthy debate and offer some constructive criticism. He was genuinely concerned about the direction of the church he loved and served faithfully. He was trying to call his church back to sound teaching and practice according to the pages of Scripture. But little did Martin Luther know what was actually beginning. Martin Luther was born to a relatively normal, upper-middle-class German family. As a young man, he planned to become a lawyer, but his plans changed in the blink of an eye. He was walking through a forest one night when a storm moved in. Lightning struck a nearby tree, knocked him to the ground, and he injured his leg. In his fear and his desperation for help, he did what lots of good Catholics back then would have done. He prayed to St. Anne to save him. And if St. Anne could convince God to save him, Martin Luther promised that he would abandon his career in law and become a monk. Sure enough, Luther survived the ordeal. He kept his word even though his father was skeptical at first. However, his time as a monk wasn't exactly smooth sailing. He quickly found himself wrestling with doubts and fears and constant depression. He had a fear of God that was characteristic of his time, the Middle Ages. God was a rewarder of righteous conduct and a punisher of wicked conduct. Martin Luther's own Roman Catholic Church taught much about God's grace, but in practice, Luther felt that it was his responsibility to earn God's approval, his responsibility to keep God's approval through his own good works. And in that day and age, people figured that the best hope of keeping yourself out of God's doghouse was to become a monk. However, Luther recognized that he wasn't very good At being holy. He wasn't very good at being righteous. He constantly worried that he had let God down, constantly worried that he could never truly do enough to keep God happy with him. As you might expect, it was a life of stress, frustration, uncertainty, and even sorrow. But then one day, Martin Luther had a breakthrough. As he was reading the book of Romans, he was particularly struck by Romans 1. 16 and 17. Those verses say this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That phrase that Paul writes in verse 17, the righteousness of God, that had always been a source of anxiety for Martin Luther. All he knew was that God was righteous and he wasn't. But this time he read that verse differently. And he found the joy, the peace, and the freedom that had evaded him for so long. Before this breakthrough, Martin Luther said this about himself. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. But then after the breakthrough... Luther said this, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Through the truth of the gospel, that the righteous God has saved sinners by grace through faith in Christ's righteousness, not our own attempts at righteousness. When he understood that, Luther finally had peace with God. But his journey was far from over. Along with that new understanding of God's grace, he developed those criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church that he would later nail to those doors. The straw that broke the camel's back came in the form of Johann Tetzel, a famous or maybe infamous seller of indulgences. The idea of an indulgence was that if you gave some money to the church, Tetzel promised that your deceased loved ones wouldn't have to spend as much time being cleansed of their sins in purgatory. Tetzel's most famous sales pitch was every time a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Another sales pitch. This one, I think, is even better. Place your penny on the drum. The pearly gates open and in strolls mum. Just give money to the church and your deceased loved ones will get to heaven quicker. Now, Luther rightly saw this as false teaching, an obvious example of corruption among the church leadership of his day. And from that point forward, Luther's separation from the Roman Catholic Church would only grow wider. Almost four years later, April of 1521, Luther was summoned to a meeting in front of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. By then, Luther's criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church had become much more popular and also had become much harsher. Luther was given one final opportunity to retract his teachings, retract his writings, and repent of his so-called sins. But Luther refused, saying this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right To go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. 
God, help me. From then on, there was no turning back. Luther was formally excommunicated. Many theologians and church leaders and even royal families, often with political motives, would end up declaring themselves to be on Luther's side. Those people would soon be known as Protestants. There were now three major branches of Christianity worldwide, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and the newly formed Protestants. Now, assuming you stayed awake for that short lesson in church history, you may say to yourself, okay, that's educational and maybe even somewhat interesting, but what's it got to do with me? And what's it got to do with our church? Well, as the Protestant Reformation got its legs under it, five core convictions became clear. They're referred to as the five solas, sola being the Latin word for alone. Those five solas are, number one, sola fide, faith alone. Number two, sola gratia, grace alone. Number three, sola Christus, Christ alone. Number four, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And number five, sola Deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. These five convictions are what make a church like Prairie View Protestant. Your Baptist and Presbyterian and Methodist and Church of Christ friends, along with lots of other denominations, likely hold to these same convictions in some form and thus consider themselves Protestant, too. You could say that a truly Protestant church operates on sola power. You're welcome. I've been sitting on that joke for about 18 months. It, it came to me as I was walking through Marsh before Marsh closed. And I thought to myself, that is a great pun. And I need to find some way to use that. But then I remembered, wait a minute, October 2017, that's like a year and a half away. So I have had that one in my pocket for 18 months and it's been killing me. So there you go. So. Considering that this month is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and considering that there are five Sundays in October, and considering that there are five solas, and of course considering that we are, after all, a Protestant church, the time seems right to learn more about each of these teachings. The truth is that our church might not exist if that cranky monk hadn't nailed his protest to a church door in Germany 500 years ago. We owe Martin Luther and the countless reformers who followed in his footsteps a great debt. If not for them, you would likely have a very different understanding of the Christian faith than you currently do. And it may or may not be very scripturally grounded. But we're not going to just take the reformers word for it. When it comes to these doctrines, they were fallible men, and it would be very un-Luther-like to believe something just because some church leaders tell you to. So in addition to seeing what the Protestants before us have to say about these things, we're going to look at what Scripture itself says. So today, that means we start with the first conviction, sola fide, 
faith alone. So open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your power. Father, we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around how great you are. And yet, you have descended to the point of communicating with us. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that many, many, many people before us have had your word as well. That they have interpreted it and studied it and wrestled with it and prayed over it. That we might understand it better. Father, I pray that as we look to your word, as we look back in the pages of church history, those Christians who have come before us, I pray that we would have open hearts and open minds. I pray that we would grow not just in knowledge, but grow in faith, grow in love, grow in trust that you really are who you say you are. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. Thank you that we can celebrate communion, as Craig said, week in and week out, regardless of the changes and the uncertainties and the fears and doubts of life. Thank you that no matter what changes in our lives, you still died on the cross, you still rose from the grave, you still ascended, and you will still return. And so, Father, remind us of that as we face the uncertainties of life. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we go any further, let's spend a moment defining one of our terms. And that term is faith. What exactly is faith? What do we mean when we use the word faith? It gets tossed around quite a bit in churches and in Christian circles, but have you ever really thought about what faith is, what this word means? Well, at its most basic level, if we're looking for a purely secular, you might say, or purely non-biblical understanding of what faith is, maybe you could say that faith is belief in testimony, belief in testimony. Faith is not the same as being naive. Faith is not the same as being overly optimistic. Faith is not foolishly convincing yourself of something that deep down you know isn't true. For example, you have faith that the bridge you drive across is going to hold you. Not just because you want it to, and not just because you hope it does, but because in all likelihood, no other bridge you've crossed has collapsed. You can reasonably assume that the construction workers who built that bridge knew what they were doing. You can even park at the edge of the bridge and watch other cars go across and see how they manage. You can combine all these experiences, all these observations, and all of this reason, and you can conclude that the bridge will hold your car. But then here's where faith comes in. You could still be wrong. Your car really could be the one that makes the bridge collapse. You can't see into the future. 
So there's no guarantee that this won't be the one time that the bridge fails. But again, you have enough faith to take the risk of crossing it. Faith is belief and testimony. Ultimately, your level of faith in a message depends on the credibility of the messenger. In the case of that bridge, you trust your reason. You trust your experience enough to drive across. But now let's say someone with a long history of not paying back loans asks you for money. They promise this time will be different, but their past failings have left them with no credibility. Thus, you don't believe their testimony. You might still lend them the money, but that doesn't mean you have faith that you'll get the money back. But let's look to scripture. Joshua mentioned this passage a few moments ago. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We read there. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When you find yourself in a situation that requires faith, you may not have enough hard evidence to guarantee that what you hope happens actually will happen. But you do have enough evidence to like your chances. In fact, you're so confident, you have so much faith, that it starts to shape the way you speak. It starts to shape the way you live. You call your family and say you'll be home in 15 minutes, even though you haven't crossed the bridge yet, because you have faith the bridge will hold you. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we see story after story of biblical figures allowing their faith to shape their words, allowing their faith to shape their deeds. They believe God's testimony so much. They believe that God will sit, will do what he says that he will do to the point that they will bet their very lives on it. The author of Hebrews didn't see God speak the universe into being out of nothing. He wasn't there when it happened, but he believes the testimony of scripture concerning it. He has faith that God is telling the truth. So authentic faith is believing that something is so true that your life is clearly and obviously shaped by it. But now let's look to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says there, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that verse last week. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and we focused on the word justified. We argued that, scripturally speaking, to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. And according to Paul in the book of Romans, it all revolves around Christ. But even more specifically, Paul says that we've been justified by the word we're talking about today. He says we've been justified by faith. Now, if we put this all together, the definition of faith, this idea of faith in Christ, we could say that to have faith in Christ is to believe the testimony concerning him. 
Faith in Christ means we believe that he is who scripture says he is. The son of God, always existing with God, born to a virgin in his incarnation and sinless. Faith in Christ means we believe that he died on the cross the way scripture says he did. A sufficient sacrifice, turning the wrath of God away from sinners and securing our salvation. Faith in Christ means we believe that he rose the way scripture says he rose. Three days later, bodily, victorious over sin and death and Satan. Faith in Christ means we believe that he ascended the way scripture says he ascended. To sit at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Faith in Christ means we believe that he will return someday the way scripture says he will return. As judge and king over creation. According to Paul, we are justified by faith, believing everything about Jesus that God tells us in his word. We aren't justified by obedience to the Old Testament law. We aren't justified by being born into the right family line. We aren't justified by doing our best to be good people. We are justified by faith, faith alone. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser puts it, faith is the way we lay hold of Christ, the way that everything he is and everything he has done becomes ours. Now, some people may have heard Paul's words and thought it sounded far fetched. Well, for that, Paul gives an example of the kind of faith he's talking about. In Romans chapter four, Paul recounts the faith of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God's promises, believed God's testimony so much that he packed up his things and moved when God told him to move. He believed God so much that he was prepared to offer his own son as a sacrifice because he believed God could raise people from the dead. He believed God's testimony so much that it led him to obvious obedience. Abraham wasn't justified by moving. He wasn't justified by being willing to offer up his son. He was justified by faith. He believed that God was right. He believed God was telling the truth. And everything that he did flowed from that. Faith comes first. Abraham never would have done those things to begin with if he didn't believe. But how about an example of a lack of faith? Well, take the Israelites in Numbers chapter 13. God told the Israelites that he'd protect them from their enemies, that he would give them the promised land. But they refused to go in and challenge them to a fight. And they refused to go in all because they didn't believe. They didn't really believe that God would keep them safe. They didn't really believe that God could defeat their enemies. They didn't really believe that they would win. The real root of their sin was a lack of faith. And that lack of faith showed itself, exposed itself in their disobedience. So again, going all the way back to Abraham, the righteous shall live by faith. No one is declared righteous by works. Jew or Gentile, old or young, 
rich or poor, religious or irreligious. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who believes in him, him being Christ, will not be put to shame. This idea that the righteous shall live by faith was true in Abraham's day, was true in Paul's day, was true in Martin Luther's day, and it's still true in our day. Now, sadly, the Roman Catholic Church disagreed with Martin Luther's idea. In the Council of Trent, canon number nine, the Roman Catholic Church says this. If anyone says that by faith alone the ungodly are justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to receive the grace of justification and that it is not necessary for a man to be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that faith is important. But it's just one of the ingredients. There needs to be a little bit more. Faith plus this. Faith plus that. That teaching was written right around the time of Luther's death as a direct response to the Protestant Reformation. And the Roman Catholic Church still affirms it today. So even though there has been much reconciliation between Protestants and Catholics, And even though there is much good that we can do together and much that we agree on, the difference still remains and the difference is still significant. Now, naturally, the question comes up anytime you talk about justification by faith or faith alone. The question becomes, well, wait a minute. What about works? It came up in Paul's day and Paul addresses it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision was one of those works that Paul said was not required to be saved. And Martin Luther would agree, and so would we. We are justified by faith, not works, not circumcision, Not our attempts at righteousness, not our attempts at obedience. We're justified by faith. However, it is the kind of faith that results in good works. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. James addresses the same issue. He makes it clear that one cannot claim to have faith if it doesn't result in good works. Some people argue that Paul and James contradict each other. Martin Luther even had a difficult time with James chapter 2 himself. But really, Paul and James are arguing two sides of the same coin. A faith that justifies is a faith that works. The kind of faith Abraham had where he got up and moved. The kind of faith Abraham had when he offered up his son, or at least was willing to. The kind of faith we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. People who staked their very lives on the truth of God's words. And if you view justification by faith as an excuse or a license to commit all kinds of sin. As if God doesn't care what we do so long as we say we believe the right things. Then something has gone terribly wrong. 
And that faith that you claim is not the faith that we actually read about in Scripture. But as we close, look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, one more time. Paul again says there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When everything clicked for Martin Luther, that the righteous live by faith, and that the righteousness of God is a free gift of faith to those in Christ, and that salvation is based on faith in Christ's works rather than my own works or your works, when Martin Luther realized that, an eternal weight was lifted off his chest. But what about you? Are you still walking around with that same weight, that same burden? Are you scared that you haven't done enough to make God love you? Have you come to the conclusion that you could never do enough to make God love you, and thus you've abandoned any realistic hope for salvation? Or maybe you're walking on eggshells, begrudgingly obeying this God who you really don't even like all that much. Well, if that's you, then justification by faith is for you. Justification by faith is for those who see just how unrighteous they are and just how gloriously different Christ is. Martin Luther wasn't right about everything. We'll learn more about that in the coming weeks. But he was right about this. The righteous shall live by faith. It was true back then, and it's still true today. Now, we'll continue to go deeper next week as we consider the second sola, sola gratia. And we'll see that even those of us who do believe in Christ, even those of us who have been justified by faith, we have no room for boasting. No room for arrogance. Because even amongst us who believe at this very moment, we must be constantly reminded that we owe every single bit of it to the grace of God. So let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the ways that you have moved throughout the pages of history. Some of the ways that you work and move are somewhat hard to understand, are a little bit under the radar, and some of them are very, very big and very, very obvious. And Father, in this case, this event in the pages of history that has had such a massive impact on our understanding of your word, our understanding of our own situation, it's very, very clear that you were in the midst of this. So, Father, help us learn, help us grow, help us mature in our understanding. But, Father, help us mature in our faith. Again, even among us who know all these doctrines, know that we've been justified by faith, we've memorized Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we still have this mentality that we have to prove ourselves to you. We still have this mentality that it's all up to our will all up to our blood, sweat, and tears to make you love us. 
But that is a foolish endeavor. Because our righteousness, our good works, our attempts at being holy, if they come just from our own will, they are like filthy rags to you. So, Father, I pray that we would trust that we are justified by faith. That we would look to Christ's work and see it as sufficient, not needing any of our own added in. But, Father, I pray that we would also have a faith that works. That you would give us this genuine faith that exposes itself and makes itself obvious through the way we live, through the way we speak. And, Father, be with us in the weeks ahead as we learn more about these teachings. And as the Reformer said, may we do it all for your glory alone. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.